0: Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hey, listeners, it's Jenny. I'm really excited to share that our next season of Women Belong in the House is coming up in just a few weeks. In the meantime, I'm thrilled to share today's crossover episode with another podcast that you should definitely add to your queue, your presidential playlist. Your Presidential Playlist is a definitive guide to the presidential election explained by the women who know it best. Host Emily Tisch-Sussman speaks with elected officials, campaign organizers, and activists to understand this important race. For this special crossover episode, Emily interviewed Representative Katie Porter,
0: Welcome, Congresswoman Katie Porter. We are very excited to have you on. If there is such a thing as a fangirl for Congress, I think I'm your fangirl. I'm your congressional fangirl.
2: Well, that's very lovely of you to say. I'm really excited to be here with you today.
0: I've been following the last year and a half that you've been in Congress um, in your first term. You've really made a huge impact. You know, you had a Im- big impact when you were running for office, running on big ideas, big progressive economic ideas um, in really a Republican district. Yours was one of the the swing districts that the nation had its eye on in 2018. And there's a lot of reasons that 2020 look very different than 2018 when you won the seat. You know, it's a presidential election, the pandemic, an economic crisis. So how does running for re-election in your Republican district feel and look different than 2018?
2: Yeah, it definitely um, is different. I mean, I think part of it is the district has changed, but I think the country has also... Had the opportunity to see President Trump, um, to see what he has and has not done. Um, and I think that they're concerned about what they've seen. They're concerned about the state of our economy. They're concerned about the pandemic, um, his actions with regard to COVID. Um, and so, with regard to protecting our democracy and some of our core institutions like the Postal Service. So, you know, I think we're, despite the challenges of voting during this pandemic, um, I think we're going to see very, very high levels of voter engagement here and around the country.
0: Your district is so interesting right now because it got so, is one of the districts that got so much attention in 2018, but in a presidential year, California is not necessarily where the nation turns the tension. Do you think that's having an impact on your constituents? Like, And, and has their, have their concerns shifted as they've seen more of the president? Or do you think it's really the same kind of driving concerns?
2: I think that you know we're a nation of optimists and we believe in our country and we believe in its institutions so I think a lot of people said, you know, this is Republican territory. We have a long, long Republican tradition here. So I think there was a sense that, you know, let's see what happens. Um, And I think that, you know, now that they've seen what's happening, their concerns are magnified. Um, And, you know, Orange County, my district, had the second confirmed coronavirus case in the country back in late January. Um, And, you know, this is an area where family is really important. Um, We have a large senior community. Uh, We care a lot about schools and education and all of those things have been really hurt um, by the president's mishandling of COVID-19.
0: One of the major deficiencies that has been exposed during the pandemic in particular, lack of parental leave and affordable childcare. And it feels like everything's kind of coming to a head all at the same time. I mean, this is something that I certainly wanted to ask you about knowing that you are in this boat with the rest of us. Additionally, one of my childhood friends is in labor right now. And when I texted her from the hospital, I said, good luck. I have to jump off. I'm going to go interview Congressman Katie Porter. What do you think I should ask her? She, this was the question that she wanted me to ask you. Do you think that there are economic proposals in place that are really realistic that could actually help us in this moment?
2: Well, it's absolutely clear that paid family leave would make a difference. Um, but we also need to just be prioritizing um, children and we need to be prioritizing working families. And you know, the baby boom generation is now older um, and they are a huge generation. And so the focus on senior issues really is there. Um, but you know, it's really, it's never been harder. Um, there was a great article I read about, you know, sort of it's never been, your know, Generation X women were already feeling squeezed before this. Um, and one of the things a lot of women expressed was that they just feel hopeless. Like they've done everything they can think of to make their lives easier. And it's still so hard so i guess i would tell people to know that you're not alone in feeling that way um, congress needs to prioritize getting funding to state and local governments we need to put getting our schools opened ahead of some other industries like bars because the reality is no part of our economy is going to be strong and stable if we don't have adequate childcare where kids can be safe and public schools um where kids can go and learn and be safe from covid 19. so I think we need to start understanding childcare not as a women's issue, although it definitely disproportionately impacts women who essentially work 30 years after the, the the blockbuster book, The Second Shift, which documented women basically work eight extra hours a day taking care of their families. That is still true, but we need to also reframe childcare as what it is, which is an economic issue. It is going to hold back our economy, our economic recovery, And our lack of an adequate childcare system, lack of adequate parental leave, lack of adequate, you know, all of these issues, they weaken and destabilize our economy. And that should be something that we should be seeing pressure from the nation's largest business leaders to try to change as well.
0: Obviously, I agree with you on the principle, but I actually, I don't feel like it's happening. I feel like instead women are just kind of quietly Feel like they're falling apart and that it's not happening. I mean, early in the Trump administration, obviously pre pandemic, working moms, working women had been like this the core of Ivanka Trump's platform and tried to really own that space. Do you feel like the Biden Harris ticket is coming out with economic policies and prioritizing them that day one would actually position childcare and parental leave as an economic driver?
2: Well, I'm really happy that Biden, but Biden's agenda for women um, includes both paid family leave to increase and expand it, but also improve child care options. Um, and I think, you know, people like Elizabeth Warren and others who made that part of their campaign ticket um, are pushing him on that. And I think we all need to continue to push him. Um, if you're casting your vote for Joe Biden, and I think you should, um, then we are partly accountable for what his agenda is going to be. And we need to make our voices heard that we expect him to deliver um, in terms of providing childcare and more support for working families. Um, so I think that there's an, you know, a part of this, and, and it's difficult for women. We, we're still fighting for reproductive freedom. Um, we're still fighting for equal pay. Um, you know, the this, this struggle is real and it feels endless, um, but we're not gonna get there by giving up. We're gonna get there by fighting harder and by identifying and supporting men who are willing to be our allies in this fight. And I think one of the things that I have been most delighted by as a candidate um, is not the number of women who said they support me when I was running for the first time, that they wanted to elect a woman, um, but the number of men who've said, it's important to me to support a woman. It's important to me to support a single mom. It's important for me to see women like you in office. And I think that is really an important opportunity here. We have to make this not just a women's issue. We have to make this an Americans issue.
0: As the economy is beginning to pick back up, people are beginning to find work. It's growing in the gig economy. That's where a lot of the work is coming from, not necessarily jobs, but work is coming from. So what kind of economic policy protections do you think that we need in place for gig workers, particularly working parents who are getting crushed, you know, both in the child care and from the parental care? And do you think those policies are, are coming?
2: Part of what we need to do is recognize that. There's less stability in a gig economy, and we've seen less job stability generally in the last 50 years. This is a long-term economic trend, um, and the gig economy is simply the latest manifestation of it. So I think it makes a lot of sense to allow gig economy workers to contribute, not to mandate, that they contribute to unemployment insurance, and also that we make sure unemployment insurance is there for them. And that's, of course, what we did in the CARES Act with the creation of pandemic unemployment, Um, But we ought to make that a permanent policy because there are going to be other times, other moments, other sector industry specific moments in which we're going to see gig workers not be able to work. We also have to understand that many people who are taking on this gig work, it is not their first choice. Um, They are cobbling it together and it is often a second or third or even fourth job. And so um, this reflects the larger issue about how difficult it is for many, many families to make ends meet. Um, This is, you know, even in, you know, I represent central Orange County. Um, This area is, you know, definitely upper middle class, middle class suburb, but we also face one of the highest costs of living in the nation in terms of housing. Um, And nothing, by the way, going back to our earlier point, not no expense that everyday families face in the country not medicine not college tuition nothing has grown faster than the cost of child care so until we begin to address things like the sticker price of college until we address things like the cost of child care until we address things like the need to build more housing to bring down the cost of housing we are just trying to backfill with these other programs and you know when we think about housing which eats up the biggest portion of most people's budget, whether they're renters or owners. And that is increasingly true, not just in the coast, but in the middle of the country as well. The last time the United States of America made a real investment in housing was in the wake of World War II. So we are long overdue, and I'm a big believer in talking about housing as part of infrastructure. So when we hear Joe Biden talk about building back better, um, we ought to be pushing him to say not just roads and bridges, but what do those roads and bridges lead to? Do they lead to adequate, safe, affordable housing?
0: I've actually often wondered why Democrats who spent years being defensive in defending the, the Affordable Care Act and the aspect of the individual market, um, why it wasn't more connected to the growth of the gig economy. You know, if someone is working a gig job, then it would be a way to be access health care. The Democratic primary conversation around health care really ended up going more into a Medicare for all versus like a growth of an individual mandate Market, but I actually still don't know why it didn't, they didn't end up getting more connected, like connecting a healthcare argument to an, an economy argument.
2: Well, I think part of it is that there are fundamental aspects of our healthcare system that are not working well. Um, and that is true regardless of how you get your insurance. So whether you get your insurance through your employer, whether you get it through an exchange, uh, whether you're paying out of pocket, whether you're uninsured, across those experiences, Um, if you get Medicare even. Across those experiences, drug prices are unaffordable. So that is a common problem across across different kinds of insurance and ways that people get healthcare. So I think that's where you're seeing some of this push for, look, some of this is just systematically broken within our healthcare system. It's not just about insurance companies, although they have been let's be clear, they have been big structural actors in creating some of these problems. Um, you know, the reality is for I'm really passionate about access to mental health care, um, and this is something that we put in the Affordable Care Act, that there would be parity between physical health and mental health, and yet today we have an extreme shortage of mental health care providers. Most of them are not in network. Reimbursement rates are too low. So that's an example of the Affordable Care Act where we have not been able to, despite making the policy we've not been able to deliver on the promise. And I think that's what leads people to say, well, this this seems like just a broken system. And the problem here, of course, is insurance companies not reimbursing mental health providers at an appropriate level um, and for an appropriate amount of care. So I think that's where the discussion began to move more toward Medicare for all. And and one of the things that I said in my, you know, I ran on Medicare for all. I'm still a believer in the system. Um, I think it is the best way to deliver the highest quality of care with the most consumer choice. And one of the things I've often said to constituents is, do you know what insurance has the biggest provider network in America? And people will guess, you know, they'll say United Healthcare or Blue Cross. The answer, of course, is Medicare. So there are more providers who take Medicare than any other kind of insurance in this country. And so I think that is a reminder for people that, private insurance isn't always delivering everything that we want it to be doing. So I think we could fix this by, by pushing on market forces in healthcare, by fighting for things like more price transparency, more ability to shop based on quality for doctors, or we could go the other direction and say, this is not something that we want to be determined by market forces. We don't want people to only get healthcare shaped by, by the capitalist economy.
0: We have an audience that is really looking to to take action. So, how does the average person say these are the things that I want? You know, when you say that we have to advocate for it, what does that look like for us?
2: Yeah, I think. I mean, there are a number of groups that advocate on specific issues, and I think that it's important to be part of those. It's important to ask candidates in your local area what their position is on this, and then including candidates in safe seats, by the way, um, because I think one of the things that happens is candidates in really tough seats like mine, we get asked all kinds of tough questions by constituents all day long, as we should. But you also need to call up your representative, whether they're in a Republican, Democrat, safe seat, and push them to adopt policy. Um, and I think the other thing that we need to, to be aware of is really being honest with ourselves about the importance of listening to younger voices um, in the electorate, and the reality is, you know, I think there's a tendency in politics to say, well, old people, older people vote more reliably than younger people. That is certainly true, but when you look at the size of the millennial generation, when you look at their passion for improving this country, when you look at the challenges that they have had to face in terms of student loan debt and um, employment opportunities, they will help drive the forward agenda. So I think there's a lot of opportunity for the Biden campaign to connect with younger voters. And by younger here, I don't mean 18, I mean under 45, because that's really where you started to see um, some opportunity for Joe Biden to grow his campaign. And I think Kamala will be very um, helpful with that and will push him in, in, in that direction in terms of listening to younger voters' voices.
0: When you interact with the campaign, what kind of questions are they asking you?
2: So largely, I've been doing um, events to help raise money, to help have conversations. To I did an um, Instagram Live with Billy Porter, which was pretty exciting. Ah, um, uh, dream. We got to turn into that. <laughs> it was very funny. Um, he was wearing like a robe. It was very exciting. Um, but I, I think, you know, part of it is COVID is changing. And I think this is an important point for your listeners who are such an engaged group you know, COVID is changing some of the moments and some of the opportunities that we have to interact. So it's important for people not to lose that habit of civic engagement. Um, and w- when Donald Trump is defeated, and I believe we will elect a different president, we can't lose our activism. Um, you know, it, you know, Joe Biden grew up, he was my age, in an era where healthcare, health insurance worked differently, where healthcare was a different fraction of the budget. Um, And so, of course, he has different experiences. And I had this own conversation with my dad. I mean, he said, I don't know, Catherine. That's my full name. I don't know, Catherine, you know, when your sister got sick and had appendicitis, Blue Cross paid everything, and that seemed like a pretty good deal to me. And I said, yeah, Dad, that's how it used to work in the 1980s. But today, there would be a very different experience of dealing with that um, insurance claim. And so I think, You know, we have to really figure out how are we going to create and sustain institutions that push the Biden administration. And they, I think, are very open to that. I think they want that. And that is such a big change from the Trump administration.
0: You've been famous in your committee for pulling out the whiteboard, getting the lesson going, really hammering in on on the people who are coming before your committee and questioning on them. Who would your dream be to pull in front of your, your committee desk with your whiteboard?
2: Oh, I mean, I would love to have a crack at Betsy DeVos um, on the oversight committee. And I think you know, just as a single mom of three school-aged children, my, not just my political work, but my whole life really wouldn't be possible um, without public schools, without knowing that my kids are safe or learning. Um, I depend so heavily on that, and I trust um, and I'm so proud of our public school system. Um, and so the chance to question her um, would be really important um, for me. I think there's also the need to really ask some important questions, to continue to ask big important questions about how to strengthen our capitalist economy. And I think one of the things, I'm a you know, big believer in capitalism, but I think you have to understand that it requires guardrails So there are premises baked into capitalism. For example, consumers have access to information, yet we live in an economy where the information that we receive when we type in something into a search bar is is controlled. Information like consumers have the ability to shop amongst competitors, and yet we have some industries where there's very little competition. Uh, Most people don't get to choose their health insurer, their employer chooses. Right, and so I think it's important to say things like consumer protection, things like antitrust enforcement, things like securities laws um, to protect investors, you know, and re- retirees. These are all important guardrails of capitalism, and I I really relish opportunities to push those who are seen as our economy's leaders, whether it's you know someone like J P Morgan Chase um, Bank CEO Jamie Dimon or someone like the Federal Reserve Steve Mnuchin, we need our business community to be questioning how to build a more stable economy for all of us, not just higher short-term profits for themselves and shareholders. What makes you hopeful? I think the level, I mean, you look at this district, I think the 45th congressional district where I'm you know, so happy to live and represent, um, there is so much change here. Um, the woman, you know, in 2016, um, the, you know, the woman that I ran against won by 17 points. That is not close. When I took her on in the spring of 2017, a number of people said, you seem like you're bright and hardworking, but like you do understand you're gonna lose, right? Um, and so, you know, in a way they weren't wrong because on election day, I, I didn't win. Let's put it that way. It took me eight long days after election day as they continued to count every single ballot um, and the registrar continued to, to to do the tally for me to actually pull it off. but. We're now in a place where this district is uh, favors Republicans by one or two points, um, but at the local level, almost all of the local elected officials are Republican. Um, so it's a changing district, but I see it changing in the right direction. I see so much more activism and so much more willingness to have tough conversations about what kind of country do we wanna be? And to me, that's what this election is about.
0: If Biden and Harris are elected, Harris becomes the VP her Senate seats open. What are you thinking about that? Would you try to go for
2: it? That is a correct statement of what will happen.
0: (laughs) You are a excellent politician with an answer like that (laughs) in your
2: short political career so far. California has such a great bench of leaders. And I think I've learned a lot from being part of this community of, of California um, elected officials and helping to try to build one at the local level um, here in Orange County. I don't relish the governor having to make this choice, um, but also California voters will make a choice um, because it's a it's a short term appointment. But you know, I think for me the most important thing is to make sure that we send Kamala Harris um, and Joe Biden um, forward to to be our next president and vice president, and it is such a historic nomination. Um, and I think particularly for women, I mean, who we've had our hearts broken time and time again here um, in supporting women candidates. And so, you know, even I think about, for me, I'm part of this, people used to ask me, you're part of this, you know, so many women, 2018, just so many women. And part of me was like 23% is not so many women. Right. So many women are what gathers at a book club, reading a Sophie Kinsella book and serving Chardonnay. So many women is not the U.S. Congress. It's 23 percent. We're not even halfway to parity. And so for for Kamala, my friend, one of my mentors, uh, my home state senator to be the vice president and to know that she will be part of shaping the country's agenda with Joe Biden. That's really what excites me and makes me optimistic in part.
1: Special thanks to Emily Tisch-Sussman and Representative Katie Porter. Check out your presidential playlist wherever you listen. And get ready for a brand new season of Women Belong in the House, coming to you in just a few weeks. Talk to you then.